This is Space Time, Series 25, Episode 49, for broadcast on the 26th of April, 2022. Coming up on Space Time, why Venus rotates so slowly and in the wrong direction. NASA's Mars Perseverance rover arrives at its primary target on the Red Planet. And humanity's latest proposed beacon to the galaxy. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new study suggests that Venus is gravitationally tightly locked to the Sun and that explains why it's so strange compared to the Earth. The findings reported in the journal Nature Astronomy may help to address some of the many questions about Earth's sister planet which need answering. Venus and Earth are almost exactly the same size and were formed in the same part of the solar system, out of the same materials and under similar conditions. Yet while the Earth is a warm, wet world capable of supporting a vast array of life in all its many wondrous forms, Venus is the nearest thing to hell in our solar system. It has a surface temperature of over 460 degrees Celsius, that's hot enough to melt lead, and a thick cloud cover crushes down the planet's dense carbon dioxide atmosphere, giving it a surface pressure 100 times greater than that at sea level on Earth. When it does rain on Venus, it rains sulfuric acid, with metal snow falling on the mountaintops. And finally, the planet rotates backwards, with the sun rising in the west and setting in the east, and so slowly, a Venusian day lasts longer than its year. Some scientists speculate that were it not for the soupy, fast-moving atmosphere on Venus, Earth's sister planet wouldn't rotate at all. Instead, Venus would be tidally locked in place, always facing the Sun with the same side, in the same way that the same side of the Moon always faces the Earth. The gravity of a large object in space can stop a smaller object from spinning. It's a phenomenon known as gravitational tidal locking. And if that is what's happening on Venus, scientists argue that the atmosphere needs to be a far more prominent factor in studies of both Venus and other planets. The study's lead author Stephen Kane from the University of California Riverside says people think of an atmosphere as a thin almost separate layer on top of the planet, something that has minimal interaction with the solid planet beneath. But Kane says Venus's powerful atmosphere teaches science that it's far more integrated with the planet and that it affects absolutely everything, even how fast the planet rotates. Venus takes 243 Earth days to rotate once on its axis. But its atmosphere circles around the planet every four Earth days. Extremely fast winds cause the atmosphere to drag along the surface of the planet as it circulates, slowing its rotation while also loosening the grip of the sun's gravity. And slow rotation in turn has dramatic consequences for the sweltering Venusian climate. Kane points out Venus is incredibly alien. One reason for the heat is that nearly all of the sun's energy absorbed by the planet is soaked up by the Venusian atmosphere, never reaching the surface. He says this means that a rover with solar panels, like the one NASA sent to Mars, simply wouldn't work there. 
and the Venusian atmosphere also blocks the sun's energy from leaving the planet, preventing cooling or the pooling of liquid water on the surface and giving the planet its runaway greenhouse effect. Kane says it's unclear whether being partially tidally locked contributes to the greenhouse state, a condition which ultimately renders the planet uninhabitable as we know it. But he says not only is it important to gain clarity on this question to understand Venus, it's also important for understanding exoplanets likely to be targeted in future NASA missions. Most of the planets likely to be observed by the James Webb Space Telescope are very close to their host stars, even closer than Venus is to the Sun. Therefore, they're also likely to be tidally locked. And since humans may never be able to visit these exoplanets in person, making sure computer models account for the effects of tidal locking is critical. This is Space Time. Still to come, Perseverance arrives at its primary target on the Red Planet and humanity's latest proposed beacon to the galaxy. All that and more still to come on Space Time. NASA's Mars Perseverance rover has finally arrived at its ultimate destination on the Red Planet, an ancient dried-up river delta in Jezero Crater that may provide evidence of life on another world. The Kasai six-wheeled rover, which arrived on Mars in February last year, has been exploring geological features to the south and west of its landing site to investigate and sample several of the deepest and potentially oldest accessible geological units in Jezero Crater. The Ceta unit, which means amongst the sand in the Navajo language, and the cratered floor fractured rough. Along the way, Perseverance, guided by its tissue box-sized Ingenuity helicopter, has collected eight samples of rock core and regolith for eventual return to Earth. Subsequent joint missions between NASA and the European Space Agency will send spacecraft back to Mars to collect these sealed samples from the surface and return them to Earth for more in-depth analysis. After visiting CETA and the crater floor fractured rough, Perseverance undertook a record-breaking 31 Martian day or Sol dash across some 5 kilometres of the red planet's landscape, retracing its route back to its landing site before heading northeast around the rim of a crater before turning northwest to ultimately reach a point dubbed Three Forks by mission managers because it's the spot where three different route options to the delta merge. From Three Forks, Perseverance can access geological locations around the base of the ancient river delta containing sediment washed down from further upstream billions of years ago. The rover will then ascend the delta by driving up a valley wall to the northwest, collecting samples as it explores the ancient and now dried up river channel. Head of NASA's Science Mission Director at Thomas Zabukin says the delta at Jezero Crater promises to be a veritable geological feast and one of the best locations on Mars to look for signs of past microbial life. He says its exploration tops the Perseverance science team's wish list because all the fine-grained sediments deposited at its base long ago is the mission's best bet for finding preserved remnants of ancient microscopic life. One goal of this excursion is to scope out the best route to ascend the delta, which rises about 40 metres above the crater floor. Right now, there are two options which look traversable. 
One's called Cape Nutshack, the other Hawksbill Gap. Now, at the moment, the science team are leading towards Hawksbill Gap because of the shorter drive needed to reach the top of the delta. But that may change as the rover acquires additional information about the two options. Whichever route Perseverance takes to the plateau atop the delta, the team will perform detailed science investigations, including taking rock samples on the way up and then turn around and do the same thing on the way back down again. Current plans will see the rover collect around eight samples for eventual return to Earth during the journey, which should take about half an Earth year to complete. Now, after completing that descent, according to this current plan, Perseverance will then again ascend the Delta, this time probably going by the alternate route, another excursion which will take about half an Earth year. Remember, this Delta is the real reason why Perseverance was sent to Jezero Crater. Scientists will look for signs of ancient life in the rocks at the base of the Delta, rocks they think were once mud on the bottom of Lake Jezero. Higher up in the delta, they'll examine the sands and rock fragments which have come from upstream, perhaps originating many kilometres away. Perseverance is kicking off its new science campaign more than a month earlier than planned, thanks to the rover's ability to autonomously navigate Jezero Crater's sandpits, craters, boulders and fields of sharp rocks. The rover's Artificial Intelligence Assisted Auto Navigation Capability, or AutoNav, assessed some 10,744 navigation images during the road trip and commanded the rover to halt and turn in place to negotiate different surface hazards some 55 times. And all that in just its first year of operations. This is space time. Still to come, humanity's latest proposal to send a message out into the galaxy. And later in the science report, a new study warns that microplastics are now finding their way into the human food chain in ever greater numbers. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Scientists have developed a new proposal to send a greeting from the people of Earth out into deep space, letting the universe know we're here. According to the Drake Equation, our galaxy alone could be host to thousands of intelligent alien civilizations. Put simply, the Drake Equation looks for N, that is the number of civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy whose electromagnetic emissions are detectable by us. N equals R that is the rate of formation of stars suitable for the development of intelligent life per year, times Fp, the fraction of those stars with planetary systems, times Ne, the number of planets per solar system with an environment suitable for life, times Fl, the fraction of suitable planets on which life actually appears, times Fi, the fraction of life-bearing planets on which intelligent life emerges, times Fc, the fraction of civilizations that develop a technology that produces detectable signs of their existence. Time Zell, the average length of time in Earth years such civilizations are around to produce such signs. Now, in reality, the Drake equation is nothing more than a bunch of estimates, the value of each of which are totally arbitrary, limited only by your imagination. But it does raise the question of whether or not we're alone in the universe. 
Now, if it turns out we're not alone in the universe, you've then got to ask yourself another question. Is it a good idea to let the local Klingons and Cardassians know we're here? See, this goes against the advice of the late physicist and cosmologist Stephen Hawking, who warned we only need to look at our own history to teach us how more primitive civilizations tend not to do very well once they encounter more advanced civilizations. You only need to look at the lessons learned from European colonization of Africa, South America and Australia. But do we learn lessons at all? NASA's twin Pioneer spacecraft, launched in 1972 and 73, were each fitted with the first messages of humanity specifically designed to travel beyond our solar system. A pair of plaques depicting a line drawing of a man and a woman, we knew the definitions of those back then, and symbols meant to show where the spacecraft originated. Then in 1977, the twin Voyager spacecraft, under a program initiated by Carl Sagan, were equipped with golden records containing far more information, including music, animal sounds, and spoken greetings from the people of Earth in 55 languages. Of course, ever since humans have been broadcasting, their signals have been travelling across space at the speed of light. So, theoretically, if ET is a powerful enough receiver... They could be tuning into old episodes of I Love Lucy, or worse still, seeing images of Hitler opening the Berlin Olympics. Back in 1974, astronomers used the giant, now gone, 305 mid Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico to send out a message, deliberately telling anyone listening about us. That message used binary code to convey information about humanity's base 10 counting system, common important elements, and a map of the solar system to let people know where we are. The Arecibo message was sent towards a globular star cluster called M13, located some 25,000 light years away, so it's still got some distance to go. Now, to mark the 50th anniversary of that 1974 Arecibo message, a bunch of scientists from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, have submitted a proposal on the pre-pressed physics website archive.org to send out a new message. This new greeting would encode information in binary and describe basic maths, physics and biology, including descriptions of DNA, amino acids and glucose. It would also contain a map showing the way to our Milky Way galaxy and how to get to our solar system using globular star clusters in the Milky Way as signposts rather than the pulsars used in the original 1974 map. The new directions show exactly where the Earth is located and provide details about the planet's composition and atmosphere. Everything you'd need to know, really. And to convey a temporal component, the authors would use a characteristic of the neutral hydrogen atom found in interstellar gas. It's the most common element in the universe. Neutral hydrogen can enter a high-energy state after colliding with other atoms or electrons, and then transition back to a lower-energy state in a spin-flip transition after around 10 million years. And it's this timing providing a universal unit of time for communicating exactly how long after the Big Bang the message was sent. Astronomer Brad Tucker from the Australian National University says if the new hello message is sent, the current target is a ring of stars about 13,000 light years from the Milky Way's galactic centre. The idea, and this is all from a, a paper that was recently written and put on what we call archive. This is the, the pre-publication server, so... Uh, hasn't gone through full referee process yet. But the idea is 
well, we have a lot new, more powerful radio telescopes and facilities. And with further upgrades, they have the potential to release a lot of power, essentially energy. And we also have updates and advances and computer algorithms and, and things like that. So why don't we take advantage of it and use it to send a very powerful radio signal to the heart of the Milky Way. So the idea here is that you aim it towards the center of the galaxy, where you're likely to encounter lots of stars and planetary and stellar systems along the way and increase your chances uh, of it going by or near or seeing by some potentially habitable, intelligent civilization if it exists. Would that be the right direction? Doesn't everything we know about planetary science tell us that uh, maybe we should be looking more in our own neighbourhood or further out towards the outskirts of the galaxy? So, so you're right. So we, the, the Arecibo message happened in 74. Uh, I think it was 74, you're right. So, you know, we're almost 50 years, and that's kind of the inspiration for this. And that was done with the Arecibo dish in Puerto Rico, which is now uh, no longer working. May I rest um, in peace. That's right. Peace is, unfortunately. Um, and it was directed at a cluster of stars that was, I think it was 12,000 light years away, something like that. So cluster of stars in the, in the Milky Way, but um, a densely populated area of stars. At the time, the thinking was, well, you know, keeping in mind, A, in the 70s, we had never even seen another planet around another star. That first discovery was back in the 90s. And now what we know about clusters is they actually are very poor places to host planets. So that wasn't maybe the best message. But yes, nowadays it's kind of thinking, all right, well, can we do it? So here the argument is, you're right, we do know where the likelihood of planets lie. They are in less dense populated areas of stars and clusters, so more towards the arms of a galaxy rather than the core of the center. Here, I think their argument is just quantity, that if you're looking towards the center of the Milky Way, well, other civilizations are likely to be looking at that as well. So it's not just the anything that we come in the path, but it's a popular place to look because if you're intelligent, of course, you're studying astronomy, you're looking towards the densest part of the galaxy, which happens to be towards the center. I guess the one question we should be asking isn't just could we, but should we? And, and this is kind of the point of discussion that a lot of people are having now uh, is, you know, what is the purpose? What is the benefits? Uh, what are the consequences? And, and this is, I think, a very important question when we talk about aliens. And I, and I mean in the truest sense, not just intelligent life, but microbes, small things, bacteria. You know, I think it's important to understand and investigate. Hopefully we find something someday, but we want to make sure we're doing it in the best possible practices. And I, and I think and a lot of people have pointed out that if we do send messages into space and they are intelligent civilizations that can pick it up again, we don't know if they exist. There's a likelihood they do. We don't fully know what that likelihood is, but it's some number. Well, you know, we kind of know what happens when two civilizations come together, especially if one is very different from the other. It doesn't always end well, and we don't want to be on the short end of the stick, as a lot of people point out. I also think there's another just point of, well, you know, when we're broadcasting these messages, even if something is 200 light years away, it would still take 200 years to get there. And none of this really benefits us, right? You know, if we're sending these messages out, it's not like we're going to get a reply tomorrow. 
If there is a reply, it is in hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands of years. The benefit one sees, I think, is if there is an intelligent civilization, they are probably searching for intelligent life just like we are. And at least we're helping them as they're searching uh, and exploring of the universe. If the universe is populated by more than just life on Earth, why hasn't there been any evidence at all for it as yet? Not even the slightest tinkle. And you're right. And this is, as you said, lots of people have asked this, dating all the way back famously to Enrico Fermi. And, and this is like something it's we grapple with. It's called the Fermi with. paradox, isn't it? Exactly. That's right. That's right. And this is something we grapple with. And I think it's very true. And this is why I think the exploration of the solar system is so important becoming bigger and bigger. Because at the very least, if we find some sort of bacteria, simple life, even simply complex life, you know, plants or fish, I don't know. It at least starts us on that path because you're right, we have zero evidence any of this exists. And this is kind of a big problem. And as with the Fermi paradox, there's lots of what we call solutions ranging from space is just very big, so we may never find it. We're pretty confident intelligent life doesn't exist in our solar system. Doesn't mean maybe it didn't even exist in the past on Mars or Venus, but not now. You know, it could be then ranging to we're in quarantine to, you know, we're a giant zoo experiment. There's all sorts of ideas the solution of the Fermi paradox. And so it, it does raise the question again, why even put the effort into this when well, we're not even really sure they exist. And I think it's a lot like that original message in the 74, the Arecibo message. We didn't even know planets existed at that time. We just thought it was likely, even though we've never saw it. So people broadcasted their message. Now we do, and we know there's thousands of planets. So maybe in 50 years, we'll know that life exists. And we still won't. I don't know. And I, I think this is the interesting intersection now that we're at with astrobiology in the truest sense, understanding life in space. There's a lot of things we know, there's a lot of things we don't know, there's a lot of things we know we don't know. And there's also a lot of things we don't know we don't know. And it's a very weird world, and I think a very important world. And at least these sorts of things get the public discussing what it means and what we should, because if we are doing something as part of the planet, we're not doing it as part of NASA or the U.S. or even North America. You're, you're doing it on behalf of Earth, quite literally in the truest sense. And so properly, I think we want to make sure that those actions are arising at a, a a point where most of the world supports it. And I think we need to have those discussions more before we start launching into a lot of these big new projects. It's called blue sky science, and it's called that for a reason, because if people don't do that, I think most of the inventions we have today wouldn't have occurred and we wouldn't be living the way we are. Getting back to what you were saying earlier about finding life in our solar system, right now the Mars Perseverance rover and uh, the Ingenuity helicopter are searching for life on the red planet. If we find life on Mars or evidence of past life on Mars and it's similar to what we've found on Earth, that wouldn't really tell us much because Mars and Earth have been swapping rocks for years, uh, millennia. But uh, if we find that on Europa or in the seas of Enceladus, that's a different different story then, isn't it? It is. And you're right. And I think there, there's a little bit of answer in all of it. As you said, if it's similar to Mars, then we at least know, A, that's not surprising, but it really just goes to show that it's actually Earth that's not special. And we kind of think this anyways, but it confirms we're actually not that special 
it is the inner solar system, like Mars and even further out to Venus. If you find it, as you said, on Europa and Solanus, Titan, you know, any of these worlds around Jupiter and Saturn that we think could be rich in potential life, that is a very different system, a very different ballgame. And again, if it's similar, well, then, you know, there's something to that. You know, is it because of the ingredients in the solar system or is it something that happened in the solar system? If they're different, that is also exciting because then it's telling us, well, there's lots of different ways and ways of forming life. Uh, and that's, I guess it's the same with Mars. If we find evidence for past life on Mars and it does look different to Earth, I, mean, I think that's very exciting because why is it so different in the evolution? And I think this is almost the, the interesting challenge we have in these questions is we don't even know what kind of what path in the road to take. You know, we're kind of at the, we're at the intersection. We have lots of ways forward. And we at least need that first inkling to know what is the next the next path and the next steps. And that has to be in exploring some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Even if, and in fact, no matter what we find on Mars, I think we still have to do that. Because as you said, how closely related in both composition, formation, and evolution, Earth and Mars, and to some extent, Venus have. Just with Mars, I think the real kicker would be if we find evidence of past life on Mars, but the proteins have the wrong handedness. That would be huge. Oh, it would. It, like, I mean, it, it, it would transform not just an understanding of space, but biology in the truest sense. And that, I think, is so cool because you really are opening up the potential for a generally whole new field of science and combination of taking the idea of astrobiology to a whole new level and putting into picture that big question, right? You know, exactly how did Earth's life start? Was it a comet? Was it a rock from Mars? Was it something different? You know, the, the various ideas that have been put forth it would really start to put those those pieces together uh, of what it may be. And as you said, if it's very similar to that on Earth, that gives stronger evidence that, yeah, maybe we did come from Mars or vice versa or some sort of commonality. Okay, you've told me about the science. You've told me what other people have thought. What do you think? You know, I, I am firmly in the camp of I believe life exists. And again, this is bacteria, simple cells, that sort of thing. Um I think it exists in the solar system. I think it's actually probably pretty common. The intelligent life question, I, I, I like to frame it into the complex life question because humans, we are a very self-centered species, right? You know, we always ask the question, let's find things like us. Why don't we ask the question, let's find things like dinosaurs? They were on the planet for longer. Uh, there was a lot more species of them. Statistically, they're more likely to be dinosaurs in the space rather than humans. We just think an awful lot of ourselves. Now, that's not wrong. That's not unsurprising, but that's reality. And I, I think complex life, you know, big things probably do exist. I hope intelligent life exists, but I, I think in the all likelihood, because of how big space is and the small amount of time we are on for a planet, it's just unlikely we're going to get that answer anytime soon. As sad as that is, I, I don't think, and not even soon, in, in generations, that is going to miraculously pop up and we say, hey, we found evidence of intelligent life. Unless it's on Mars or in our solar system, I, I think because of the vastness, unfortunately, of space, that's going to be the limiting factor and always be this question we have. But I do think we'll get an answer at least. Yes, life does exist somewhere else, again, in our solar system. And, you know, what it may look like, that's really exciting. That's what, you know, I, I want to know. And I always like to end on this. I don't actually worry about aliens. You know, there's, again, this discussion that we should we worry about contacting them. I don't because I think it's A, unlikely, and B, I actually worry more that not that life exists, but that we are the only place that has life. If we are the only place that any sort of life has ever evolved with, that I think is a bigger, scarier, 
answer than the one Jan Leipzig just commented. That's Brad Tucker, an astronomer with the Australian National University. And this is Space Time. Time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study has shown that getting vaccinated after recovering from COVID-19 results in a substantially stronger immune response. The findings reported in the journal Clinical and Transitional Immunology are based on tested blood samples taken from patients over a period of seven months in order to examine the antibody and T-cell responses to the vaccine and how long they last. The authors found that T-cell responses, anti-spike IgG responses and neutralising antibodies were all enhanced in the 118 COVID-19 recovered group who were vaccinated compared to the 289 vaccinated samples from people without previous COVID-19 infection. Over 6.2 million people have now been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus since it first escaped from Wuhan, China. But the World Health Organization says the true death toll is likely to be at least double that amount, with over half a billion confirmed cases globally. Meanwhile, a study reported in the Lancet Medical Journal claims the most accurate modelling so far suggests that more than 18.2 million people have now been killed by the virus since it first appeared back in the area surrounding the Wuhan Institute of Virology back in September 2019. A new study is warning that microplastics are finding their way up into the food chain. The findings reported in the journal Science of the Total Environment show that broken down microplastics have been found in viable concentrations in blue mussels and water within the intertidal zone at some of southern Australia's most popular as well as some of the more remote beaches. The authors from Flinders University say the latest results mean that microplastics are now finding their way up into human food supplies, including both wild-caught and ocean-farmed fish and seafood sourced from once pristine Southern Ocean and Gulf waters in South Australia. A new study has found that arm and clavicle fractures are the most common injuries for riders of e-scooters. The findings reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association are based on a study in Finland which showed there was an almost 2% chance of injured riders requiring admittance to an emergency department. The authors conducted an observational study of 331 patients who were treated for e-scooter-related injuries and analysed data from the two e-scooter companies operating in the area. Their study revealed that the most common injuries were to the distal radius and to the clavicle, and there was a 1.8% chance of an injury occurring on an e-scooter that would require admittance to a hospital emergency department. They also found that 44% of injuries that required treatment occurred between midnight and 6am. A new book's just been released, claiming to provide a scientifically critical analysis of ghosts and the supernatural. 
However, Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics warns that in reality, most of the book's 247 pages are simply telling ghost stories with very little ink devoted to actually looking at any science. There's a, a recent book that came out which reckons that connecting history with science to uncover the greatest ghost stories ever told, elements of the haunting. Now, it's been promoted as a serious scientific appraisal of ghosts and paranormal events and that sort of stuff. Heavily criticised because the trouble is... The, what a lot of these ghost researchers and people consider science is not very good science or scientific practice. Why the camo what, gear? <laughs> I Why don't know. Night? Yes, all those issues. So, I mean, they don't make sense at all. But also, a lot of the people's idea of what science is in ghost hunting is having a few bits of electronic equipment. They go beep. They go beep and click and that sort of thing. But that, that are often just pathetic, jokey things. They really, I mean, yeah, they, they make noises and stuff, but the, the uses of them. readers and things like this, which are. All that sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, picking up ghost presences and all that sort of thing. waves, so it's a radio. Yeah, which is which is as they're, as they're pointing out, is probably the mobile phone in your pocket, which is also creating a problem, an interference pattern or something. But there's a lot of tech out there which you can buy. You can buy it in electronic stores and things. Often it has another use, which is it's a valid use, but applying it to ghost hunting might be drawing a long bow on these things. But therefore, this book that sort of talks about scientific elements in ghost hunting, etc., is often sort of overstating and is classical with you know with the industry itself, that it's overstating scientific validity of the ghost hunting process. Now, most of the TV shows you see about ghost hunting, and they come and they go, and are generally rubbish, quite frankly. I mean, apart from they are literally made up because they actually promote hauntings which don't exist, and participants in the shows have actually been, have spoken out in the past and saying, most of the stuff you see on the ghost hunting programs is fake. Whether they say, go back and do it again, and make it look scarier. They are literally fake ghost hunters with fake hauntings and fake circumstances unfortunately. Even most of the ghost hunters would say, you know, most of the people who do go out and they don't make a great living out of it would say that most of those TV shows, etc. are phony. You um, mean the Discovery Channel's lying to us? Dear, oh dear. I'm sorry about that. Yes. So therefore, the idea that there's scientific underpinning, as much as a lot of the ghost hunters are quite genuine outside of the TV shows, the, 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 the real ghost hunters you meet and you talk to, and I've talked to quite a few over the years, they're, they're, they're nice enough people and, and they probably genuinely believe, or sometimes it's handy to believe if they're taking people on tours and stuff, but most of them say, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there which is shonky. We know it's not that some of them's not very good evidence, but they believe anyway, and they're trying to find evidence for ghosts or whatever, and they're trying to do it in a scientific, or yeah, approvable way. In the same way that a lot of UFO believers are trying to actually prove scientifically, or at least with some sort of evidence, the existence of UFOs, and the same with ghosts, which is good, but you've got to do it properly, and there's a lot of aspects of science and scientific method which is not well understood by a lot of these people. They just think, if I get clicks on a machine, that's evidence. You say, no, 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 no. You've got to, you've got to look at the circumstances. So you've got to repeat it for a start. And when you're dealing with ghosts, it's pretty difficult to do that, I assume. I do have someone who talks to me who can reckon he can summon UFOs. All right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, some people apparently he, can do it all the time. Has he proven it to you yet? He sent me some videos. Does he prove it? I'm having it assessed at the moment okay. by, by some UFO experts around the world. In this new study of these supernatural phenomena, there are 
number of chapters, ghost science, ethics, protocols and standards, so technology in the paranormal, which you sort of just alluded to there. I take it they go through this piece by piece. Trying to establish some credibility to, to you know, ghost science, if you like, but most of the stuff, they're, they're really just paying lip service to these things and treating it pretty quickly. I mean, we're for, for a book that's supposed to be, what, 247 pages, it only actually gives about 34 pages devoted to any form of science at all. And the rest of it is all just anecdotal evidence and, you know, isn't this a great ghost story? And the trouble with ghost stories is it's like the same, I feel, as this trouble with unknown creatures, the evidence for yaois and yetis and this sort of stuff, is that each individual claim and evidence is sort of would rate two or three out of ten, by and large. You know, they're not very good, the film is not very good, the photos are not very good, the evidence is not very good. But you give it uh, two, two or three out of ten. And the trouble is that people think, if I get a lot of two or threes out of ten, it makes a ten out of ten. It doesn't. It makes a lot of two or threes out of ten, and they're all the same. And After a while, when you get a lot of two or threes, you start thinking, well, it's not going to get any better than this sort of very mediocre or poor evidence. And you start to think, well, maybe it's not there at all. And maybe the standard is just poor evidence and you have to leave it at that. A lot of poor evidence is not good evidence. It's just a lot of poor evidence. And the same with the ghosts and the UFOs and the unknown creatures and that sort of stuff, sadly. I mean, as much as, much as they, we'd love to believe them, as lots of they're fun, a lot of things are intriguing. Oh, I desperately want to see Bigfoot being real. But so do I. So do I. I'm, I'm, I've been to Loch Ness three times. Still haven't seen it. The closest I've been was a truck selling monster burgers, which worried me. They caught it and chopped. Well, it's supposed to be a protected species, isn't it, if it's real? <laughs> well, it probably is, uh, whether it exists or not, you know. Sort of, uh, but, I mean, you know, I, I can't see any harm in, in Loch Ness Monsters or Big Feet. Can't see any great harm in just standard flying saucers either. And ghosts. Ghosts would probably have a bigger implication for your everyday life than, than a Loch Ness Monster would. Ghosts have the implication of life after death, so that's got a pretty big concept. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favourite podcast download provider and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimewithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 